ladies and gentlemen. The IG is here. The IG is here. The IG is here. At fifth element underscore UK. Follow that. Follow that. Follow that. Follow that. Follow that. Follow that. And in the words of Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you have all had a good week. Well, it's been pretty, pretty slow. Pretty slow, you know. Not ain't done much. Ain't done much. Only been doing the five days of fifth element. Yeah, that's right. I've been doing things. Trust me on that. I've been doing my things. It's all, it's all good. I've been, I've been, <sighs> been putting in that, putting in that time. Uh, so. As you're listening to this, which is obviously, well, whenever, because it's a podcast, but <laughs> oh, God. if you if you are if you are listening to this in the week that the episode drops, um, currently in the midst of five days of Fifth Element, which means I have been spending the past, well, two days as of this recording, uh, posting uh, Fifth Element content, wherever, wherever it may be, whether it's Digging in Digits, whether it's this podcast, and also uh, three uh, t well free TV reviews, uh, which I have, which are all on the Fifth Element. Uh, whenever you listen, if you listen after this after this week, then you know, you, you can read it if you want. Uh, but yeah, so it's been it's been a lot of planning, a bit a lot of uh, just obviously writing, of course, getting back into that, and yes, yeah, so, and getting some visuals as well, which is um, which is always uh, fun to do. So yeah, man, and also obviously the Fifth Element IG is finally here. It's finally available to all, and I'm just gonna try and, you know, focus on that. Try and focus on getting the getting the numbers up for that uh, without doing hashtag bombs, which I which I just don't enjoy. I just don't enjoy looking at. I don't. I don't know. Do people do people look, like look up uh, hashtags on IG? You know, when you know when you search up a specific hashtag, do you? Unless it's yours, like I have, I have a couple. But do you, do you, do you go on it? Do you go on the on the hashtag? Like look at the post pertaining that has that hashtag on it. I don't, you know, when when it's like hashtag travel, do you do you click on that and have a look on that? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how people work. I don't. I never do that. So I don't. I don't know if anyone is like me. But yeah. Regardless of that, I'm just gonna focus on the IG. See what happens with that. And yeah, I'm constantly just trying to keep keep on moving, keep keep moving like we all try to do, and uh, just uh, keep trying to do our things. But anyway, formalities before we begin. I can finally say it. <laughs> formalities before we begin. We have the Facebook, we have the Twitter, and we have the IG. <laughs> You have no idea how 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 many weeks I've been wanting to say that. So we finally have the IG, and you can go follow that at Fifth Element underscore UK. It's the same as the Twitter. So if you follow the Twitter, you can follow the IG, and it's, they're both the same. They're both the same uh, username. So I'll be. I really wanted to get that as well, the same username. So yeah, we are good. And yeah, without without further ado, let's get into the show. week where, for the first time in history, the Hubble Space Telescope has spotted liquid water. It's been found on a planet called K218b, and it's only 110 light years away. So, there's there's hope. There's hope, guys. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's hope for us yet. It's only 100, 110 light years away. Uh, a pensioner claims he spent 30, 30 grand of his life savings. Uh, including his son's inheritance, fighting a hundred-pound speeding fine. I don't know if you've seen that the uh, particular news clipping I saw it about a couple of times, but yeah, just just look that up if you have the time to to look it up. And it's just great. It's it's just great. I, I don't know why. It, obviously, it's a you know that's a case of principality of the situation, and that's just too deep. Like a hundred-pound speeding fine, and you spend thirty k trying to fight it. Nah, if if you sped, you sped. So. It's kind of cut and dry, you know what I mean? I don't know why you'd 
don't know. But anyway. And after... <laughs> this is funny. After 22 years and seven tries, Ash Ketchum finally wins the Pokemon League. <laughs> he finally did it, ladies and gentlemen. I don't, I don't know whether to roast it or like or really applaud it because that is some... Obviously, this is this is fictional, but this is, this is some amazing uh, level of persistence right there. Twenty-two years of being ten, the same ten-year-old, and and finally winning the Pokemon League. Big up, big up to Ash Ketchum. I don't, I, I don't know whether to roast or applaud it. Honestly, it's just um, there's there's a message in there. With, there's a real positive message in there, but there's also just a uh, dude in twenty-two years. <laughs> Why is I didn't realize Pokemon was still going to be honest like a show I didn't realize it was still going as a show obviously in Japan obviously it's more uh popular in Asia, in Asia overall Asia but um I just didn't know it was still the thing didn't really didn't really know it was still the thing but I guess uh I guess I got to applaud the uh the the persistence of the show continuing to uh, he is a crap character let's be real just as character he's really terrible as a like a pokemon trainer he's whack let's be real so you know but let's not get into that we shall instead get into sport and actually have a uh a, a even docket today have a have a life have a sports have a music and have a film and tv so it's really rare i do that these days but uh, i finally i finally did it i finally got back to what should be what should what should uh what should work but anyway let's get into sport and this is about this is you know a conversation about free speech kind of thing. Um, also, again, by my boy, my goat, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar via the Guardian here. And uh, this is a story I actually didn't really hear about until I saw this particular article. And it, yeah, it gives a it gives a good conversation about free speech and what fans can do as fans in a stadium and obviously watching a sporting event. Obviously, we talk about. We we talked about a couple. Well, last time we talked about uh, Kareem's uh, one of Kareem's articles. It was uh, about uh, protesting as an athlete, and obviously this is much different considering it's about the fans. So we shall see how this goes. Let's get into it. This is called banning fans' free speech is not consistent with our vision of sport or democracy. That's a see. This is why I love Kareem, bro. This is why I love him. Like he he can talk about sport. You can talk about films, and you can talk about politics all in one go, and it's just and it's just seamless. I, 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 he, he's just he's just so supreme, such a, such a G, absolute go. Anyway, pushing back, pushing back, way back is a classic American football chant encouraging the players to muscle the opposition back down the field. Today's fan participation is a lot more complicated, especially after Major League Soccer recently banned a group of Portland Timber fans. Uh, from attending three matches at Providence Park for waving flags that, waving flags that displayed the anti-fascist iron front symbol. Uh, this weekend, Seattle Sounders fans walked out of a match in protest at the ban uh, on political banners. Uh, now, when we yell that nostalgic pushing back cheer, we have to ask more complicated questions, such as who does M refer to, EM, uh, the opposing team, the owners, or the fans. By push, do you mean bu- to bully people, owners, non-political fans, outspoken fans, out of their rights? And by way back, do you mean back out of the stadium or back to 1950s when politics and sports rarely cross paths? For 50 years, I've been an outspoken supporter of athletes' right to silently protest during sporting events, whether it's raising a fist, as Tommy Smith and John Carlos did in the 1968 Olympics, or Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the National Anthem, or LeBron James wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt while warming up for a game. Athletes have a constitutional right to express their outrage over social injustice in hopes of improving lives. Clearly, fans should, uh, should, have, those same, should have those same rights. But no one's rights are absolute when the act of expressing them may restrict someone else's rights. So, when championing the fans' rights in this situation, there are a few con- uh, considerations that have to be acknowledged. Athletes who protest during sports events have traditionally done so silently. Their act is designed to raise public awareness to inspire ch- positive change while being respectful of the game. They do nothing to interfere with the sporting event, which would infringe on fans' rights, although some owners f- and fans claim that any reminder of politics hurts their enjoyment. That's a bit of whack, anyway. Uh, that's an unreasonable reaction to the relatively brief and unobtrusive expression of constitutional rights on behalf of those marginalised people uh, being denied their rights. 
The first problem with the stance that sporting events should be non-political is that the playing of the national anthem itself introduces politics into the sporting event. Now, I'm just going to stop there because this, this paragraph is going to be big important, just, just so you know, so listen up. I'll start again. The first problem with the stance that sporting events should be non-political is that the playing of the national anthem itself introduces politics into the sporting event. It's blatantly pandering in an effort to associate the event, the event with patriotism, akin to a politician kissing a baby or petting a puppy. It's, te- it's like telling a fan, quote, you're being patriotic just by being here, slurping beer and chomping on a hot dog. Before 2009, NFL players weren't required to even come out of the locker room for playing of the an- for the playing of the anthem. In 2015, a joint oversight report revealed that $5.4 million of taxpayer money had been paid out to 14 NFL, NFL teams between 2011 and 15 for displays of quote-unquote patriotic salutes to the military. Between 2012 and 2015, the U.S. Department of Defense spent at least $10.4 million on quote-unquote marketing and advertising contracts with professional sports teams. This isn't patriotism by the teams, it's commerce. There is nothing patriotic about a ball passing over a goal line or through a hoop, and we shouldn't sanctify our games with a litmus test of who deserves to express their opinions. Teams should have the should have the right to make such deals, but they shouldn't then suppress free speech while they're busy selling the right to speak to the highest bidder. See, I told you that's an important <laughs> paragraph. That's a boss paragraph. What leagues can do is insist that expre- expressions of political allegiance are maintained within consistent parameters that ensure they don't interfere with fans watching the event they pay to enjoy. By consistent. I mean that if a stadium allows American flags or team banners to be waved or displayed, they then they should allow political flags and banners of the same size to be waved by fans, as long as they don't promote uh, symbols of hate and violence such as swastikas. Certainly, if fans held up large banners that block the view of other spectators, that would be a violation. But if you allow a MAGA hat or a t-shirt, then you have to follow an iron front hat or a t- or t-shirt. Team owners have expressed fear that interjection of politics, no matter how noble the purpose, will alienate their fan base. Part of this fear was stoked by President Trump's tweets in 2017 at the height of player protests that the NFL ratings were quote-unquote way down and that the American public is fed up with the disrespect the NFL is paying to our country and uh, our flag and the national anthem. Not surprisingly, this was false. The NFL increased its revenue by 5% in 2017 when Nike launched an ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick. The conventional wisdom chortled that Nike would take a huge uh, commercial hit from that mysterious and feared fan base that hates free speech. It didn't happen. Instead, Nike's sales rose by 10%. Fear is the greatest enemy of free speech, and facts are the greatest cure to that. For, uh, facts are the greatest cure to that fear. Thomas Jefferson urged urged us to quote educate and inform the whole mass of the people. They are the only uh, sure reliance for the preservation of our liberty. Unquote. But with so many Russian trolls disseminating false information in an effort to sway our elections, with a president who lies on a daily basis, with news outlets like Fox News that have been proven to report misinformation, and with most people restricting their input of information to sources they already agree with, sometimes the only way to convey an opposing opinion is the is opposing opinion to the population at large is through public gatherings which is why it's all the more important to make sure those avenues of expression stay open. One of the reasons we embrace sports so dearly is that they can symbolise human interaction at its most noble. Fair play, meritocracy, sportsmanship, competitiveness, striving to be better, pushing the limits of human achievement. Curtailing the free speech of athletes or fans is not consistent with our vision of sports or our vision of democracy. So the the big point I would like to put forward to this is simply that when it comes to well the example he gave uh cream gave on that was obviously the nfl and how they you know have all these national anthems and they have to come out they that you know obviously they have to come out and you know stand up and all this <laughs> and all this stuff now and it's uh you know they're contractually obliged to even if they're you know, not American or whatever, you know, they have to do all this patriotism stuff and they have all the, you know, the flags on the field while it's happening and sometimes they have jets flying over. <clears throat> this is kind of a, um, a, 
uh, what's the what's the word aftershock of 9/11 still I think um you can link that to well obviously after 9/11 happened there was all that patriotism coming through in America which is you know uh, granted but now it's more about I don't know what is the necessity there what really is the necessity there you know we if we if we go to if you if you go to any English football game, there's no we're not we're not seeing God save the Queen for everyone. We do it for national games because that's obviously because it's a national game. And when we have a national game, they also play the opponents' uh, national anthem. It's just that's just how it is, and that makes sense, right? Because it's the national team. NFL is not a national team. It's 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 a football league, it's a national football league, but the teams are city based, so. Why? Why would you? Why would you play the national anthem? Where's the logic there? You know. So, this is clearly an aftershock. Still, after all these years of nine eleven, and just how uh, uh, patriotism is kind of like the uh, the what's the word? The 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 ointments that uh, that goes over people's mental wounds. But now it's not even just that anymore. It's disguised as that, probably. You know, it's disguised as that, as patriotism and stuff like that. But like Kareem said, commerce is is commercial as well. They're doing it for money. They do it for. They, I think they have like a whole week of uh, veterans, a uh, uh, veterans week, something like that. And geez, NFL on that week is just ugh. it's just you know constant veteran stuff, and you know it may look like it may look like uh, patriotism, you know, uh, head uh, hand on the head uh, salutes, you know, and all that stuff, but. There's a lot of money in that. There's a lot of money given. There's a lot of money given and taken by several people. And it's not just the NFL, but also the American government, stuff like that. So, and when it comes to the, you know, the crux of the article, which is obviously fans and their participation, I believe that, yeah, I understand if it was, if it's something like flags, you know, and you're not in that you're not you're not about that you're just there for the game then yeah sure if it's obstructing your view then you have every right to say nah this ain't this ain't it that ain't it i'm trying to watch the game and you've got a big ass flag like waving about that's not about that's not that's not it chief um it's the same when excuse the plane it's the same when uh when i watch i don't know a football game or an f1 an f1 race actually where you see uh after well after the italian grand prix recently uh, obviously, because Ferrari won and they're in Italy, the loads of uh, quote unquote tifosi uh, came out on the track and celebrating Charles Leclerc's win. But there was there was so many of the that Ferrari memorabilia and just uh, and just Ferrari flags and gear. Um, now that's just because it's Ferrari, right? It's a it's a it's a motorsport team. You know, you have every right to post that. But if they had one of those big ass, um, you know, you know them big ass. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, it's not a flag, but it's like a, you know, it blankets over several hundred people, right, it can do that, you see those in some, um, in some football games as well, and everyone has to, like, move it, move it to the left or right, you know, so it could, so it looks like it's moving, like a human flag of sorts, right, so, so if that was, like, a, like a, an Antifa thing, or a, a MAGA thing, you have every right to say, nah, this ain't it, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm not a part of this, like, why why am I under this, like, big-ass blanket flag right now? That is obviously just obstruction of, um, I don't know, I don't know what the term is, but the right to be a fan, I guess. You're not part of that quote-unquote protest. The point, of, the point of this particular article is that you could protest, right, but if you protest in your in your in your means in your space you know what i mean so wear a shirt um <clears throat> have a flag and you know hold it over yourself you know put it put it right in front of yourself i'm, I'm i don't know why i have my arms up as a podcast but you know have your arms up in front of you and have the flag there right that's that makes sense because it's not obstructing the view of people behind you it's not obstructing the view of people in front of you uh, in front of you or next to you it's right in front of you that's fine it's your space right you have the right to that space but when it comes to stuff like, you know, big-ass flags that people wave around uh, before games and stuff like that, and if that's obstructing someone behind you, then they have every right to go, nah, put that down. So, <clears throat> I don't know. It's, it's Obviously, obviously there's a, there's nuance here, but then again, there isn't uh, in, in some ways, because if you want to protest, then protest. That's fine. Be Do you. If you want to protest, um, <clears throat> I don't know, 
Boris Johnson's greatest prime minister to ever lived. You have your right to say that. You're wrong, but you have the right. You have the right to protest that if you really want to. Um, <laughs> what an example, what a crap example. But yeah, you might. You know my point. <laughs> you can do that if you really want to. But if it, if you're at a sport event and you're strutting my view, or you're I don't know, if you're abusing my experience in some way by constantly talking, by constantly raising your voice about it. And then it's something, then that's when you get into uh, enough of that territory. So I don't know. But anyone, anyone should protest, regardless of where you're at in the sport. Event. We now move on to life, and I want to talk about climate crisis yay let's, let's get into that again shall we because obviously it's a consistent thing we should know this by now the amazon is still on fire in some in some cases so and probably uh if i if i do look it up uh, the um, fires in africa are still going on most likely so you know it's still a thing it's always going to be a thing until we sort it out and until then i'm gonna sometimes talk about it so get used to it anyway so let's get into this so this is a um this is a interesting i guess um uh what's what's the word uh, uh, possible possible harms that can come our way in the future uh, so this is by emily holden uh, in washington apparently uh via the guardian don't know why the location matters to me but i said it anyway and it's called uh like a sunburn on your lungs how does the climate crisis impact health so this is a just an interesting article giving certain uh, if you if you are this or if you have this kind of thing, uh, like allergies or if you're pregnant or if you're a child, stuff like that, elderly, there are many possible uh, potential uh, ailments that could harm you if we continue down this road of the climate crisis. So with that said, let's get into it. The climate crisis is making people sicker, worsening illnesses ranging from seasonal allergies to heart and lung disease. Children, pregnant people and the elderly... Uh, are the most at risk from extreme weather and rising heat. But the impact of the climate crisis for patients, doctors and researchers is already being felt across every specialty of medicine with worse fear to come. Quote, there is research, there's research suggesting that our prescription medications may be causing harm because of our changing heat patterns, said Aaron Bernstein, a pediatric hospitalist who is the co-director of the Center for Climate, Health and Global Environment at Harvard University. Damn, that's a title and a half. Jeez, imagine having that on your business card. Jeez, that's a, that's a tasty line. Um, there's evidence that extreme weather events are affecting the critical critical medical supplies so we can't do things as we normally do uh, normally would do because iv fluids aren't available and there's evidence that extreme weather events are knocking out power more and more and that is a huge issue for providing care and health care facilities in a recent example a study in the journal of american medical association found that lung cancer patients undergoing radiation were less likely to survive when hurricane disasters disrupted their treatments an August article in the New Zealand Journal of Medicine lays out dozens of similar studies to show how the climate crisis affects each practice of medicine. Rene Salas, a co-author of the report who teaches the uh, teaches emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School, said, quote, The climate crisis is impacting not only health for our patients, but the way we deliver care and our ability to do our jobs. And that's happening today, unquote. So the first uh, subheading here is allergies, and I sh- I should know a thing or two about allergies because I have allergies. Yay! Big up hay fever gang. Uh, <laughs> big up the hay fever homies. Um, climate change makes allergies worse. <laughs> Excuse me. As temperatures increase, plants produce more pollen for longer periods of time, intensifying the allergy se- allergy seasons. Increased concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can make plants grow more and cause more grass pollen, which causes allergies in about 20% of people. Carbon dioxide can also increase the allergy-causing effects of pollen. See, this uh, I'll probably feel that now recently because uh, we've had a couple of days of half decent weather, you know, and some some in the you know 20s, couple in the mid 20s, some some in the some in the 15s, and yeah, man, I'm, I'm my eyes have been a bit, you know a bit irritated in the past couple of days, so I'm not, I'm not going to chalk that out to allergies, 
but you know it's, it's possible anyway Nilu Tamala an ear nose and throat specialist at the George Washington Medical Faculty Associates in Washington DC jeez what are these long names uh, said said she she said she sees many patients with uh, allergic rhinitis rhinitis yeah rhinitis or inflammation of nasal cavity congestion and post nasal drip nasal drip interesting uh, it used to be, quote, this used to be uh, that tree pollens were only in spring. Grasses were just in summer. Ragweed was just in fall, Tamala said. But the timing of those is starting to overlap more. One of Tamala's patients, Kelly Kenny, said her had minor, se- minor seasonal allergies as a child, but now suffers from year-round, uh, suffers from year-round from sinus pains, ear pressure, and congestion. For the last four years, my symptoms have gotten increasingly worse, Kenny said. Next one is pregnancy and newborn complications. So for those with the babies out there, pregnant people are more vulnerable to heat and the air pollution that is being made worse by climate change. Bruce Becker, a San Diego-based obstetrician, obstetrician, yeah, I got it right. Obstetrician gynecologist who stopped practicing six years six years ago to spend more time as a climate activist has compiled 68 studies from the continental U.S on the association between heat, smog and the tiny particles of pollution that come from fossil fuels and how they are and how they are connected with premature birth, low birth weight and stillbirth. More smog forms when it's hot and some research uh, uh, suggests particulate matter also increases with the climate crisis although the data is less robust. Becker says, uh, said he and his co-authors found a significant association in 58 of the 68 studies the body of research covers 30 million births in the US. Becker said doctors should talk more, talk to their patients about how heat waves could lead to premature births and how staying away from air pollution can help them keep their children healthy. In the developing world, pregnant people can also suffer from food, mortar scarcity, insect-borne illnesses such as the Zika virus, which was spread by mosquitoes, are also a hazard to developing fetuses. Next one is heart and lung disease. This is fun, isn't it? <laughs> but, it's, but it needs to be said. Uh, air pollution gets worse as, as temperature rises, as temperatures rise, stressing uh, both the heart and lungs. The fossil fuel pollution that causes climate crisis also is linked to increased hospitalizations and deaths from cardiovascular disease and is connected with more asthma attacks and other breathing problems. More intense wildfires spew dangerous smoke into the air as documented in the western US this year and US this year. My pronunciation of S is a bit weird today. Anyway, and hotter days make more smog, which the American Lung Association describes as acting like a sunburn on your lungs, which may trigger an asthma attack. Now, I just want to stop there because obviously I have asthma, and you know, I don't, I don't really. It's, it's very mild. So I'm not gonna act like it's, you know, it's heavy. Um, I've never had, I've never had an asthma attack in my life. I've never experienced that, um, but you know, I still have asthma as as it, as it goes by definition, and, um, you know, I've kind of real, I've kind of noticed this thing in, in my own breathing, and, you know, this is just me, I'm not going to say it's a trend or anything, the, you know, I've, I know other people that have had this problem, it's just me, I'm talking about just me here, but I do feel like in this past summer, my breathing has been, I don't know, not tighter, but more noticeable, I will say that, um, now, partly is partly that maybe because I recently had a chest infection and I'm still recovering from that. Maybe, maybe that. Um, but I, I don't know. You know, ever since um, ever since the uh, Amazon fires was um, Amazon fires were you know put into the news cycle after you know five weeks of it uh, going down, I started to I don't know notice my breathing more. If that makes any sense, just notice how I'm breathing, I guess, and. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a bit weird. I can't really explain it, but uh, I guess it's, if if you do have asthma and you and you you might know what I'm talking about. I guess it's more your breathing is more noticeable. It's not you know stupid tight or anything, but it's noticeable. Anyway, the next one is risks for children. Children under the age of five experience the majority of the health burden from climate 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 change, according to the Salas report. Salas's report. Samantha Adut. Adut, a pediatrician in Alexandria, Virginia, treated an 11-year-old and 13-year-old who moved from Florida after a hurricane destroyed their community 
and their medical records at their doctor's office. One needed surgery for a heart condition that had to had to start from scratch with a new cardiologist. Both had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, uh, that was harder to treat amid the major life disruption without records on adjustments to medication doses. Adut, who has also founded the group Virginia Clinicians for Climate Action, said she has uh, seen an influx of families moving because of weather disasters. Uh, we've got a few. We've got a few more, which are relatively small, and I'll stop there because there are well, there are there are a lot. But um, let's just get into some get some small ones. So skin disease, higher temperatures, and depletion of the ozone layer increased the risk of skin cancer. The same uh, refrigerants and gases is that a word refrigerants? Didn't know that was a word. That's quite cool. And gases that damage the ozone layer contribute to climate change. Uh, what's what about infectious disease? There you go. Changing temperature and rainfall patterns allow some insects spread farther and transmit malaria. Dengue? Is it dengue? 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 I don't know. Lyme disease and West Nile virus. Waterbone cholera. And wow. Cryptosporidiosis. Cryptosporidiosis. That's a that's a long word. Increase with drought and flooding. Uh, mental health as well, this is a big one. The American Psychological Association created a 69-page guide on how, how climate change can induce stress, depression, and anxiety. The group says, quote, uh, group says, quote, the connections with mental health are often not part of the climate health discussion. People exposed to or displaced by extreme weather or violent conflict are at higher risk for mental health challenges. Extreme heat can also make some mental illnesses worse. The University of Maryland, 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 uh, Howard Center for Investigative Journalism found emergency calls relating to psychiatric conditions increased about 40% in Baltimore in summer 2018, when the heat index surged above 103 Fahrenheit, as reported on NPR. Fahrenheit, what? Oh. What a dead, uh, what a dead meat, uh, meter reading, uh, and some psych, uh, psychotropic uh, medications interfere with the body's ability to regulate temperature, increasing vulnerability to heat. Uh, I'll end it with these two: nutrition. Uh, carbon dioxide emissions are lowering the nutritional density of food crops, reducing plant levels of protein, zinc, and iron, and leading to more nutritional deficiencies. Food supplies are also disrupted by drought, societal instability, and inequity linked with ch- climate change. And the last one is trauma. Extreme weather events, including hurricanes, flood, and wildfires, often cause physical injuries. Doctors see minor fractures, crush injuries, and smoke inhalation. Extreme heat is also linked with aggression and violence, and the climate crisis globally, excuse me, is connected with violent conflict and forced migration. So. <sighs> And that's just, a, and that's just, you know, I didn't read all of them, but those are probably the biggest ones uh, of note. And boy, and obviously that was very America-centric, but you can clearly, you can clearly clock that this isn't just an America-centric thing, you know, with, with UK, it, uh, you know, if I'm being UK-centric here, if UK is getting hotter, then that's kind of, it's kind of going to give the same... The same effects, will it not? Regard regardless of where you're at, you know there are different places. Uh, America has several, you know, different climates. They have snow somewhere. They have deserts in other places. You know, they have city places and rural places. So you know, it's not all the same. Um, and it's not the same here in England either, or, or the UK either. So I don't know uh, what I, I guess I gave that information in the effort to just say that. Well, this is a podcast, and the topic was life, and this was this is a very life specific topic. Um, you know, it, there's a it doesn't escape everyone. Wait, not everyone can escape from this. There you go. That's what I was going to say. Um, this is inescapable. Um, this is something that could possibly affect you. It probably is affecting me right now, you know, if I'm being me-centric now. <laughs> it might be affecting me right now, and I may not even know it. Um, every time you every time you sunbathe or something, or, or just accept this, or just take in the sun for a bit, you know, that's just increasing risk of skin cancer or something like that. And obviously that's been, that's always been a thing, you know, so it's always been, uh, 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 what's the word? Um, 
noted in the news and stuff like that, you know, and, and when you're a child, you're forced to put on sunscreen and stuff like that, you know, uh, and parents say, like, oh, you're going to get skin cancer, you're going to get sunburn, you know, there's a lot of things that we've been taught over the years, um, but this, you know, that we don't know how large this climate uh, crisis right now, as we, as I speak, is affecting us. Um, and we might not know until it's too late. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there because uh, <laughs> I don't really have a po- I don't really have a positive spin to this. There really isn't. Like we either we either deal with this individually and do what you can. Um, just do your research, to be honest, because I feel like this is one of those things that need to be deeply researched. And the papers are there, the reports are there, the science is there. It's just up to you and I and all of us to do our research and act accordingly. So we move on to film and TV, and I'm going to keep this light because this is basically talking about the anniversary of one of, well, probably my favourite film of all time, if I'm being real with you, Shawshank Redemption. It's turning 25. And, uh, you know, I actually watched it a week or so ago. Um, I just, if you haven't watched The Shawshank Redemption, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Because it, it, it's just it's just the greatest. Like, it's, if I really want to, well, actually, let me read this first. And then I'll get into why, why I enjoy it so much. But, um, yeah, so let's get into this. This is via The Hollywood Reporter. Shout out to Trilby Beresford who wrote this, and uh, it's called The Shawshank Redemption Turns 25, Frank Darabont reflects on the journey from box office bomb to off- Oscar nominee. Quote, I remember the first, the very first movie I ever saw in a theatre. My big brother Andy took me to see Robin Crusoe on Mars at the World Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard, which is no longer there. It was full colour on the big screen and blew my mind. Recalls director Frank Darabont, movies had me at hello. And the, ahead of the 25th anniversary of Darabont's 1994 directorial debut, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, the filmmaker happily summons his memories of shooting the Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins starrer that earned seven Oscar nominations, though, as the director explains, it wasn't good news from the beginning. After gaining the confidence to attempt a character-driven adaptation of Stephen King's novella and then writing the movie in eight weeks, shooting for 71 days, and screening the finished product at the Berlin Film Festival and participating in a, quote, whirlwind press junket, Darabont was frustrated by the initial reaction. When the movie was released, it didn't do very well at the box office, which was a tremendous letdown and gave me a profound sense of disappointment, he says, adding that the film had earned 97 and 98% scores at test screenings. But we couldn't convince people to actually go see the movie because I think it appeared to be kind of a bleak film. People thought it was going to be a bummer. According to Box Office Mojo, the film originally opened in 33 theatres and made 727327 dollars The lifetime gross is $28,341,469. THR's, the Hollywood Reporter's, original 1994 review of the film states, Frank Darabont's writing and direction are generally crisp, but Shawshank is a tough watch and audiences could use some time cut from its 142 minutes. Despite its unenthusiastic reception from filmgoers, the movie generally received positive reviews, which was a turn for the better. But arguably, the best outcome happened when Academy voters got involved and saw the movie via screeners, leading to the film's seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. And then Turner Classic Movie started airing the movie every five minutes, quote-unquote, Darabont says, which gave the film tremendous exposure. He added, So this interesting slow burn happened where the movie just started to find its audience, accrue credibility, and attract a kind of devotion that is amazing, humbling, and surreal. From not uh, from a not-great box office release to the most rented video of 1995, it was a really good result. Sharing details about Shawshank is not difficult for Darabont, since he's one of those directors who can't bear to see his own film after the editing is completed or the movie had been has been released. On the contrary, Darabont revisits the film every time there's an anniversary event such as now. Quote, I can't believe it's been 25 years. My God. He exclaims, adding that he recently visited Mansfield, Ohio, when the movie was shot 
and where the prison is set in the film to take part in panels and autograph signings. Quote, they are so proud of being uh, being the hometown of the movie, Garavon explains. And nowadays they have tourist indus- a, a tourist industry that never existed because of the film. Uh, they have annual celebrations. Recalling his time directing Freeman and Robbins, Darabon notes that it was a great experience and learning that every actor is different and the director needs to be a barometer for what the actor needs or doesn't need. He says that Freeman worked from the gut and needed a little conversation, while Robbins came more from the intellect and thrived on conversation. I always felt a great comfort level because they're great actors, said Darabon. Throughout his career, wherein he created Walking Dead and follow-up features as The Green Mile and The Mist, Darabon is often reminded of a piece of filmmaking advice that he received from screenwriter and Kramer vs. Kramer director Robert Benson. Uh, Quote, every day of filmmaking feels like a failure because you had to give up something. As Darabon explains, Benson was referring to the pressure of a ticking clock. Uh, How every director walks onto the set with a a set of creative ambitions for the film. And every day, because of the demanding schedule, they have to give up a handful of things they really want to do to make the film better. Quote, I've remembered his words of wisdom so often since then. Any time I've had a day where I felt beaten by the clock, when I've had to give up something, I always think of what Robert Benson told me, and I take comfort from it. Darabont expresses gratitude for the continuing relevance of the film, and recognises his enduring legacy. It's a really good feeling to have something like that in your past, he concludes, it just never went away. And really it didn't. That's the end of the article, by the way. It really didn't go away, like it hasn't gone away especially in my my mind obviously because one of my favorite films of all time probably the the most favorite film of all time for me um if you again if you haven't seen it then slap yourself and go see it to be honest um but i do understand when he said that you know people well the review the thr review said it was too long i guess for some audiences i understand that because this is a very it's a very uh it doesn't demand, I don't think it demands a lot from the audience. Uh, I think it demands trust from the audience. Like, you have to, you have to trust. It's like, when you watch the film, it is bleak in, for most of, most of the things. There are, as it goes, little pockets of, of, of spirit and uh, of, I guess, happiness, I guess, in, in a way, and freedom. Um, but most of the time, it is usually bookended by some just really just just despicable acts or just uh, just general bleakness, right? I understand how people can find that find the film a little bit either long or uh, just constantly punching you in the face in terms of just bleakness, bleakness, bleakness. You know, I can see that. But the ending is so rewarding. The last 20 minutes is so rewarding. I don't understand. I, I really don't. With that said, I really don't understand how people can not feel rewarded from the end of it. If you really, if you give this film your trust, if you haven't seen it before, if you give the film trust, right, that it will get better. Trust me, it will. Because that's really what it asks. That's all it asks, I think. Yeah, it just demands trust. And if you do give it that, you will be so rewarded so rewarded because you feel like the first couple of times I saw it um I felt like I was in there for the 20 years or the 18 years however long uh, Andy's in jail for it it really does it, it the the time the time goes by so quickly if you think about it in the broadest of scopes because you know it's it, it goes from it goes across a a time span of like 18 years or 20 years something like that right and if you really think about it like that, if you if you have that in your back in the back of your mind that we're in jail with these people with these with these men for 18 20 years, right? If you put that in the back of your head, the film will breeze by. Trust me, the film will breeze by and every time I put that thought into my head and put it in the back of my head when he enters the prison and that amazing score comes through with these oh, I, I I just love that school when they come when the bus comes into the prison. It's glorious, but yeah, when you give it when you give a film like that uh, trust, and obviously I love it from a screenwriter perspective because it's so character driven and the and the growth throughout is just fascinating and the characters that come in and come out and 
just the stakes that are added sometimes it's uh, it's just glorious it, it really is just a glorious piece of work and uh yeah so if you haven't seen the film go see the film and the one of the pieces of advice i give you is well two pieces of advice is one give it your trust that the length and if you and if you just keep in your mind that they'll be this this spans across 18 to 20 years the film will breeze by, trust me. It will breeze by and you will enjoy it. I think you will be rewarded thoroughly because it's just it's just such a rewarding ending. It really is. So big up Shawshank Redemption, twenty five years old and Yeah man, I can watch that film for it. I can watch that film every every day of the week. Every day of the week. So we move on to the final topic of the day, which is music, and I wanted to leave this last because uh, I kind of find it funny, but also very prevalent, I guess. I don't want to cast it as serious because I don't think it's too deep, but it is is worth talking about, I'll say that. So uh, this is all about Wiley, Wiley, the Godfather of Grimes, it's all about Wiley, and uh, He's been going on, he's been on Twitter recently, uh, tweeting, tweeting uh, just uh, just wild statements, very wild statements, uh, calling, uh, well, aiming at Ed Sheeran and uh, more recently Drake. Uh, basically, calling, labeling them both culture vultures, right? Um, if you want to go see his tweets, go see his tweets. And if you really want a, a, good, uh, a good diet of what he's talking about, um, look up uh, Dottie's breakfast show of I think it's Radio One Extra or Radio One I forget which is uh, forget which one is it's probably One Extra and um, just look up Dottie's breakfast show and uh, just listen to Wiley's interview via that uh, they have a they have a phone chat for about sixteen minutes and it's one for one thing it's funny as hell it's, it's just glorious because he just he just he just goes off it's, it's great it's, it's always funny when a dude like that goes off but he clumps Ed Sheeran and Drake into this culture vulture label, which you know I've talked about a couple of times uh, via here and also via Digging Digits. Um, I don't usually use the word vulture. Um, I use the word leech instead, like positivity leech or culture leech, whatever you want to, however you want to put uh, label that. Simply because when it comes to these. You know, allegedly, I'm going to put allegedly in this case, uh, just just for now, um, uh, culture leeches, right? When you say vulture, that gives me the thought that you know the the thing they are take the thing they are the culture they are, I guess, uh, taking or whatever or whatever, however you want to slice that, is is dead. But that's really not the point here, is it? It's the fact. Excuse me. It's the fact that. Um, UK rap or grime, whatever you want to, well, you should call it UK rap because um, uh, shout out to my man Mansell who said uh, who said in a conversation actually we were having about this particular topic he he went on a tangent going grime is dead and I was like that is that that is kind of true and I just didn't really realise that until he said it <laughs> but um, yeah when you see UK rap now it is flourishing flourishing like Stormzy is one of the biggest artists in the UK right now that's fact. Um, Every, every nearly every week, there's some UK rap thing going on, and you know somebody's blowing up or somebody's releasing some work, and people are listening and people are and and it's charting. You know it, that's that's the more uh, concrete look at it. Is this this stuff is charting? UK rap is charting. UK hip hop is also charting. You know, Mercury Prize winning, um, becoming and stuff like that. So. Uh, it is it is it, it's, it's growing and it hasn't been this big ever I don't think um, it may have been bigger in you know in pockets but not as a total like like a generation the UK the UK rap generation right now is so big uh, it's just yeah I think point made but anyway with that being said I don't want to vulture isn't the word because vulture indicates that it's dead and clearly it's not like I just said for a minute um so I think what Wiley's trying to get at is that they're is that Drake and Ed Sheeran are leeches, and that they take, they you know they take from the culture, 
uh, that we are that we are talking about right now, and they you know do nothing else for it. You know, they 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 don't help push it forward or anything. They just you know get a couple of features or whatever, and then and then they and then they go off on their merry way. Um, which, well, I'll get to my opinion on it later, but um, let's just get into the story itself. Um, I'm, I've got this just random one from uh, uh, Katie Rosinski. Rusin- Rus- Katie Rosinski of the Evening Standard. Uh, this is just a general uh, article. Uh, Ed Sheeran shares open letter to Wiley as he breaks silence on culture vulture criticism. So Ed Sheeran has responded. Drake obviously hasn't because Drake. Why would Drake respond to Wiley? <laughs> that'd be amazing if he actually did. Uh, that would just that'd just be amazing. Just more ammo for me. But um, yeah, Ed Sheeran has responded. So let's get into it. The Grind Pioneer uh, criticized Sheer- uh, Sheeran's collaboration with Ms. Stormzy titled Take Me Back to London Remix in a series of tweets posted last month which have since been deleted. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, he has since called the Shape of You singer a pagan and tweeted that Ed Sheeran and rapper Drake are the two worst uh, two worst culture vultures on the planet. Speaking of Radio 1 Extra last week, and there you go, it's one extra, uh, Wiley said that the singer, quote, had to use grime to tip his song over the edge and claimed that Sheeran uh, did not sufficiently support grime musicians by featuring on their tracks. In a statement posted on his Instagram story, Sheeran said that he wanted to clear a few things up and claimed that he never refused to work with Wiley. Um, so let me just let me just read let me just read the whole thing. Dear Wiley, just wanted to clear a few, few things up. I never said no to doing a song for you after we made Sh- uh, you for number five. Uh, you wanted to release If I Could the same week as my debut single on a major label, and I merely asked if you could move to a week before or a week after, which you did. The song came out, and I'm still very proud of it. I've said yes to 90% of the features I've been personally asked for, unless I've been on break or I haven't known the artist personally. The only time I can think of that I didn't let my name get featured on a song that I was on was on Chip's League of My Own Part 2. He asked me to sing backing vocals, which is which I did. He said is, which is did, which I did, and didn't fit. And I didn't feel comfortable being a featured artist when I hadn't written or performed properly on the song. You need me, and I don't need you. I wrote when I was 15, and definitely isn't about anything other than teenage angst. You know I have deep love and respect for the scene, and for you, I look forward to Godfather 3. Excited to hear this. Uh, hear it. This is the last I say on it. Okay, so uh, Stormzy previously defended... Uh, Stormzy's actually added into this uh, as well, uh, in a way. Uh, Stormzy previously defended Sheeran's work with Grime Ice in response to Wiley's initial criticisms, replying to his tweet with, No, Wiley, you know Ed been doing this uh, from early. Been a real one from early. Can't question that. You know I love you and respect you, brother, but nah, don't do that. The rapper has since name-checked Wiley on his new track, Wiley Flow, with, fan- with fans confused as to whether the lyrics are intended as a diss or a tribute to the godfather of grime. Okay, so that's kind of the uh, the, the the scene sets, I guess. Um, you know, uh, uh, Stormzy is obviously a little bit of part of this because he Wiley started talking about this and uh, obviously because the track of note that started him on all this was uh, Feature Stormzy. So Stormzy obviously had to make a make a, a slight of this. So, you know, I highly suggest you go listen to the Radio One Extra interview because that show that gives a lot of inf- he gives a lot of information and you know really tries to um, articulate what he's talking about. Now, my view on all this um, is that I don't think I don't think you can. Uh, I, when it comes to Drake and Ed Sheeran, right, I would say that you can't take, you can't, I think, I don't I think you could look at them both exclusively. I don't think you can, I don't think you could look, look at them exclusively when it comes to this conversation, right? If you think Drake is a culture leech, like we have, like we've established here, uh, which I personally think he is, sorry for the P uh, popping, um, which I personally think he is, then I would also, I think, I would also think, um, in my logic here, that Ed Sheeran, in a way, is the same. Now, obviously, there's a difference here. There is a big difference here, and cuts into uh, my theory here. And what cuts into it is the fact that Ed Sheeran has, like Stormzy, Stormzy said, has been here from early. He really has. 
Um, I remember an interview that I listened to, I think it was Wretch Free 2. I forgot where it's from, maybe it's been from a podcast. And he and he reminisced on his early days, and uh, obviously Ed Sheeran at the same time was in his early days. And he constantly saw Ed Sheeran. He constantly saw him at shows, um, like you know, coming on. And he actually uh, told a really good anecdote, uh, which I, for some reason, really remember uh, vividly, where he said that he did a show, Retrofit Two did a show, came off. Uh, Ed Sheeran was next, and he dabbed up Ed, going, "What's going on?" And uh, Ed said, "Or was it the other way?" Either way, he dapped up Ed in backstage and uh, Ed said, I have another show to get to tonight, later tonight. And that's, and you know, I can respect that hustle. I respect that hustle. And, you know, I don't, I don't listen to Ed Sheeran. I will be real with you. I don't listen to Ed Sheeran um, simply because I just find his music just overrated, to be honest. Um, I don't, I, I find it a bit milk toast. I find it a bit cookie cutter. Straight up pop, and you know, you know, obviously he tries to, you know, with the recent collaborations, you know, tries to add the, you know, cultural flavor of wherever he wants to go to, and you know, that's all to himself. But it's not like you know the best of that sound. If you want to listen to that sound, you go listen to someone an artist who is in that sound. You know, I mean, you don't go listen Ed Sheeran. So Ed Sheeran is really for the for the radio people or for the people that don't listen that don't explore music um in particular he's there to give he's there to give the basic flavor of whatever especially with the recent collaborations but yeah i just don't really rate edgeron's music all that much to be honest but i do respect the hustle i do respect that he's come here he's he is where he is because of his own you know his own talent and his own persistence i do respect that now when it comes to that with that said I can't imagine that Ed Sheeran is a culture leech in the way I think Drake is. Now, when it comes to Drake, I've said this before in probably on what's good in terms of radio show and I think in writing as well. Um, I do find him a culture leech. I straight up find him a culture leech, I think. Because when I, when I also mean that, I want to add another wrinkle to this culture leech conversation, right? Because when you're a culture leech, in my view, my definition, right? You don't just, you don't just hop on to the culture, right? And then hop off. You take the good from it. You take all the good from it and take none of the bad with it. You know what I mean? You, you don't take none of the bad with it. So you can take, so you take dancehall, right? You take the sound of it. You take the culture of it, you take the wine, you take the, you know, you take the wine, you know, you take the dance moves, you can take the beat, but you ain't taking none of the negatives that come from, that come from that, you know, that comes from the origins of dance hall, or more specifically into this conversation, you can take, you can, you can put Skepta on a track, you can put gigs on a track, you can, you can get Jay Huss to come on stage with you as soon as he comes out from jail, cool. But when are you going to talk about knife crime? And I've said that before. When when, when are you going to talk about the positives? Uh, sorry. When are you going to talk about the negatives of whatever UK rap is talking about? And more recently is stuff like, you know, knife crime, drugs, and just, you know, trying to uplift the youth as well. Because, you know, they don't have much these days. The community centres are are few and far between, they don't have much, they, 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 you know, they have to do something with their time, and they don't have that these days, so, when are you going to talk about that? If you really, if you're really going to be about it, be about it, you know, I just, that's all I ask, personally, like, um, and I can see why people would put Ed Sheeran in that same stratosphere, Simply because he will, you know, he does it. He he takes the he takes the vibe of whatever, especially with this recent collaborations album. You know, takes the takes the vibe of whatever the featured artist wants to do. I guess I don't know the I don't know his process, and then that's it. But in that but in the case of grime, in the case of UK rap, I Ed Sheeran has been in that circle for a while. He's been, you know, known in that circle for a while. And that's the only difference I can find in this between the two. Drake's literally just been here for like two years, reintroduced Top Boy, and now you will see him as Road. You know, I'm being very generalizing with that statement, but still, <laughs> you just, he's just honorary London now. It's just, it, it just irks me the wrong way. 
Now there are there are some uh, there I do admit that there are some holes in my logic here, and I'm completely willing for anyone to test me on it. I'm really, I'm really completely willing to do that, but it's just how I see things at this point. And in terms of the Wiley interview, uh, that he does speak a few facts there. It's not all facts, but there are there are the there are some facts there. So um, yeah, just go give that a listen and form your own opinion, and then come back to me because uh, I do find this an interesting conversation uh, for sure. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, this has been what's good. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. I thoroughly enjoy this one. Um, I'm actually what 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 the, what weather is it? It's, 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 uh, it, I feel hot. It's 17 degrees, but I'm, I feel hot. I don't know why. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about that. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, it's been a good, a good few topics. Uh, uh, very, very wide-ranging. And uh, yeah, I hope you, I hope you guys have, uh, have uh, you know, uh, well, like always, I hope you've, I hope you've enjoyed the show and uh, hope you, you know, look up your own, look up your own things and, you know, constantly look up this climate change stuff and, you know, do, do your research because um, I am not the authority on any of this stuff, except Shawshank Redemption, obviously. <laughs> but anyway, for... From the Fifth Film Podcast Network, I have been Charlie Taylor, and this has been What's Good. Intro music and outro music is Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music is Vista by Poldor. You can find all their music via Bandcamp in the link uh, in the descri- links in the description below. You can also find Chill Hot Records uh, Bandcamp there. Shout out to Chill Hot Records for the ability to use these songs. I hope you all have a good week. I shall try and do the same. Follow me, follow Fifth Film on Instagram. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.